This lesson is a follow-up from last week's lesson. The title of the lesson is, Is Baptism a Disputable Matter? I don't go into the full detail of every aspect of baptism today, but I'm going to go into one very specific part when we get there. I'm going to uh, first kind of remind us of what I did last week and why we're actually on these lessons. And uh, I'm going to begin by uh, pointing out that what we talked about last week about Romans 14, acknowledging the Christians will have differences of opinion on some matters. And the question then we're going to ex- explore today is, is baptism one of those disputable matters? So, to the left, I, you see I've got a couple of bu- bu- bulletin points, and I will um, point out to anybody who might be simply listening today, I rely heavily upon uh, the visual of this uh, presentation, and I'm using what's called Prezi, an online presentation source. And I am not very good with Prezi, and I wrestled with it this week, so I hope everything kind of flows. This is certainly not exactly everything that I envisioned that it might be. But we're going to look at the first point uh, that we considered a little bit last week, and largely last week, was the faith that was at the very first settlement in the United States. This is, you know, we look back to Jamestown as the founding place of our very, of our nation, and so much of who we are today is actually stems from what took place at Jamestown. And that's true of the faith of our nation being based in Christianity. So those people who came were from England. They were associated with the Church of England, a Christian denomination. So first of all, let's consider Jamestown. And this is the trip that we took. We left Cincinnati and made that trip over to the, to the eastern seaboard. And you can see down on the, the lower right there is Williamsburg. Right next to Williamsburg, Colonial Williamsburg is where we spent most of our time. But right next to there was, only 10 miles away, was the, the Jamestown Settlement. So one of the days we went to visit the Jamestown Settlement. And in that settlement, there were a a few kids that were playing the Three Stooges. Um, But anyhow, they got to try on some of the the weapons, the armor that these people would have worn, had a little fun. But one of the buildings, uh, it's not the one right behind them, but a very similar building was a church. So inside this fort that had been built, Uh, Sometime after 1607, 1607, 08, 09, somewhere around there, they finally got this fort built, this settlement, a place to protect themselves, and in that place they built a church. So in the church, we went in there, and uh, it it could hold quite a few people, uh, probably not as many people as our building here, but they did have a very similar setup. I mentioned this last week, but didn't have pictures or slides. So in that setup, they had a large podium up top. Luke got to go up there. He was the only one who actually went into the podium. Uh, He didn't do some preaching because people were there, but I think, uh, oh, Jack did go in there. I didn't even witness that. I came in a little late, I think. But he is at the very front of the auditorium, and you see behind him is, you barely make out some words, I believe there is a plaque behind him. 
I believe. And that's what spurred me on. I didn't pay attention too much up to, to that plaque, that um, statement of faith. It's a creed. It was the Apostles' Creed. I didn't pay too much attention to it when I was there, but I did look up and found another picture that somebody had taken of it. And uh, you'll see it's right behind him on the wall. And here is the picture that I found online. Somebody else had taken this picture. And this is the Apostles' Creed um, based upon the uh, Church of England. And there are a lot of different versions of the Apostles' Creed. They're all very similar, but just minor differences. And so the Apostles' Creed, uh, and I mentioned this last week, kind of the idea of why creeds? Why not just search the Bible and learn from it? There are some things that are debatable and some things are not. And I want to read the Apostles' Creed to point out a couple of things regarding debatable issues. So here is the Apostles' Creed as was posted on their wall. Uh, basically from the Church of England. I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, which was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence shall he come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So there is probably the earliest creed, um, statement of faith developed by men, this was not developed by apostles, but you would probably say as you look at that, well, it's not, it wasn't written by the apostles, but much of it is based upon what we learn from the apostles, isn't it? Much of it is straight from the apostles. And you might notice the, some of the language is not straight from Scripture. One place is toward the end, it says the Holy Catholic Church. Somebody asked me about this. I use this language of Catholic Church. Um, and... Uh, one of our visitors last week said, Catholic Church, why? the sermon was great. You mentioned that, though. That was, I don't get that. What are you talking about? Catholic means universal. One universal church. There is, the point is, there is just one true church. That would be the scriptural language, one body. And so that term, if, if Catholic means the one true body of Christ, that is everybody who is in Christ, you're a part of his church then I say amen to that, even though the word Catholic or universal is not specifically in Scripture. So we can talk about that, but it wasn't something. So that was like, what is that? But there was one other spot in there that includes a very debatable issue. The creed contains a disputable matter. Does it not? At least one. The one that I would focus on, the one that brings the most discussion or dispute or uh, discussions about how the, is this scriptural or not, is the fact that it says, uh, after suffered under Pontius Pilate, right towards the middle, was crucified, dead, and buried, the language is, he descended into hell. He descended into hell. Some creeds are translated, he, he descended into death, 
we would probably say, well, that makes a little more sense. But he descended into hell. Is that true? He descended, Jesus descended into hell. And there actually would be some folks who could say, hey, Scripture points to this. And then some people would say, hey, those verses you're using don't necessarily say what you're saying. They say, so it is a disputable matter. If you're really interested in it, we could maybe uh, study it a little bit, study it sometime. That's not the point of our lesson today, though. The point is that there is a disputable matter in here. He descended into hell. And they created this into a creed. And the creed says that, hey, if you're going to belong to our church, you have to agree with everything in here. You have to be able to say this or we don't recognize you as being a Christian. Somebody comes along and says, hey, that one point, I'm not sure about that. Well, then you're not a part of the church, you know, and you're cast away. You're not recognized as a believer. So the idea of disputable matters, according to Romans 14, you've got to give room to each other to have some differences of opinion in so much as Scripture allows it. So you've got to take an honest look at Scripture and discuss something. So this idea of he descended into hell, we would need to discuss. And I think everybody would come away if we discuss that honestly would say, well, it's an interesting thought. I don't necessarily know if I agree, but I guess I can understand why somebody would say that. So that's my opinion on that disputable matter. But we're going to move on to something else. That was back behind the podium. Remember where we started? This was posted on the wall, and I suspect that was probably something they did back then, was post some things on the wall so they'd remember who they are and what they believe. The early founding of our our, uh, land, of our nation, was rooted in these Christian principles. One of them being, in my opinion, a disputable matter. That was in the back. Well, there was more in there. So I want to go on to look at this idea of baptism at Jamestown. And the church wasn't very full that day. Uh, Either that or we just got there late and it had been full and we had to sit at the back. But that's the back entrance. And you'll notice Will is over on the left side of the picture. Uh, And he is fiddling around with something, looking at something. What? And I ended up going back there, and he was like, what is this? And at first I was like, I don't know for sure what that is. A little, a little strange. Maybe it's a place where they had holy water. It was a stand about, uh, you could tell it was about waist high, the top of it. top of it was a bowl. And in that bowl, it was a place, obviously, where they could put some liquid, some, some water. So he was, he was standing there back by that. But you'll also notice there's another clue then, I figured out later, that, go ahead thing, back there on the wall there was a plaque with a scripture on it. I took a picture, this is my picture, and on that picture is Acts chapter 2 verse 38. So Acts 2.38 being on the wall, they had placed that there near that particular fount, and I believe that was what Will was asking about was a baptismal fount, or font, Font, however you say it. But it's a small bowl for them to to do baptisms from. On this wall it said, the verse, Then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost." So isn't this great? These original people who came, they claim to be Christians, 
And they believed in baptism, which I, I love very much, that they were honoring baptism. They believed in baptism. The question comes then, well, how do you do baptism in a, in a bowl that's eight inches wide? We have this huge baptistry behind us to immerse a person. Can you do baptism from a bowl with water you could hold in your hands? It's an interesting thought, isn't it? Does the Bible support pouring or sprinkling as the mode of baptism? From the New Testament alone, and this is my, my quick summary of the important matters pertaining to baptism, is that no, when you think about the mode of baptism, how you do it, I'm not talking what baptism does and how it takes away sins, it puts us into Christ, I'm not talking about the theological things uh, that are important spiritually, but just the mode of how to actually do it. What does the word baptism mean? It cannot, according to the New Testament, be pouring or sprinkling. Number one, the primary meaning of the Greek baptizo, it means to immerse. Immerse or dip. That's what baptize means. It means to dip, put under water, put in a liquid, not necessarily water, just to dip something. The one to administer baptism, now as you think about Christian baptism and the rite as one person was commanded to go and baptize others, you'll notice in the places that it mentions, particularly in Acts, it talks about that uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, they both went down into the water. So there is the one to administer baptism and the recipient both go down into the water. You don't have one just reaching into the water and pouring it on another or sprinkling another. You have them both going into the water to be able to administer baptism. Acts also teaches us that much water is required. Um, also in one of the Gospels, uh, John was baptizing in a place where there was much water. Much water is required. John the Immerser, John the Baptist is what's referenced in 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 the, the Gospels. Also, my last point is, is that immersion reenacts the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So all of these things point to the fact that you need one, much water. One person goes down into the water with another person, immerses that person, and raises them up to a new life. That's the basic thing that we understand and know about baptism from the New Testament, from many scriptures and understanding it. So when you get to this idea of a small bowl, a baptismal font, how do you immerse somebody? You can't take somebody and dunk them into it. And certainly you can't bury them into it. So I asked myself, well, if this could be a disputable matter, is somehow Eric missing something? Are we missing something pertaining to baptism? Then I need to be honest and argue with myself a little bit from Scripture. We've got to be fair. We've got to uh, let Scripture speak for itself and not speak to, uh, not speak our thoughts into Scripture. If those people, and I told you last week, those people who claimed to be in Christ and were, were carrying the name of Christ with them, and the first, one of the first things they do is build a church, I want to be one with them. Jesus wants us all to be one. He wants all Christians to be united. So even if we're separated by time, I still want to be one 
with those people. Those people at Jamestown coming to explore, these, those brave folks coming to explore the new land and risk their lives. Neat people. I want to be one with them in Christ, though. So let me turn to Scripture to try to prove myself wrong. That's what we do. If we're going to be honest, if we have a viewpoint of Scripture and we say, hey, Scripture says this and it's pretty indisputable, I want you to consider this. Well, first, before I try and convince you, I better try to fully convince myself. I've got to be honest and look and consider every aspect of Scripture. The New Testament, here is the new aspect which I wanted to look at. Because I looked at that little bowl and it's kind of like the best thing they could do is maybe scoop a little bit of water or maybe put their hands in it and sprinkle it on a kid. That's the best they could do if they're going to baptize somebody with that at that stand. So the New Testament does mention sprinkling. It does mention a, a, a pouring out of the Holy Spirit, but I can't think of any place where that would have to do with um, pouring water over somebody. So let's think about what the New Testament says about sprinkling. Hebrews chapter 9. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses... To all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and goats, the water and scarlet, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and the vessels of the ministry with blood. This is a New Testament passage. It's written, the, it's from the book of Hebrews, was written, so it was written to Jews. It was written to Hebrews. They would understand this concept that the first law, the law of Moses, it came about because it involved some sprinkling. The blood of calves and goats with water. So they mixed the blood with some water, and then they took some scarlet wool and hyssop and dipped it they dipped those things, the scarlet wool, the hyssops, dipped them in and then sprinkled. Dipped and then sprinkled. That's the concept. In the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with blood. So the way things were set apart for God is they killed an animal, used its blood, and then from that blood mixed with water, they sprinkled that on those things that were dedicated to God. They were made holy. They were, they were set apart for God's purpose. All right, so that's just one passage, and it's a reference then back to the Old Testament. It's talking to us about sprinkling, but the reference is to what they did under the Old Covenant. Now another passage is from Hebrews chapter 10, a little bit later, verse 22. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus... So here we are, we're talking about the new covenant in Christ. The new covenant in the blood of Christ. Verse 20, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near 
with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an, uncon from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So there is this sense then that as Christians, we can draw near to the throne of God because our hearts have been sprinkled. So there is a sense that we receive sprinkling, right? Our hearts have been sprinkled from an evil conscience. We've been cleansed by that sprinkling so that we no longer have our, an evil conscience. But I will to say notice the very end of that verse. And our bodies washed with pure water. So, a couple of things going on there, perhaps. Maybe a reference to us being sprinkled, but there's also a reference to our whole body being washed with pure water. But that is a reference to us being sprinkled. I'll, I will say that. I won't say that that is necessarily a reference to baptism and how to baptize. But perhaps if we want to have a, a clean heart, we do have to have our hearts sprinkled. And then we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. And I'll start in verse number 1. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens throughout these places, who were chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So I'm going to simply point out the fact that we do get sprinkled. Sprinkling is part of the New Testament covenant. As we obey Christ, we are somehow sprinkled with his blood. So now what does this necessarily mean? And you'll notice in the verses that I had looked at, both of those, the sprinkled or having been sprinkled, those are highlighted and they come from the same root word, and, um, and I think to understand the word, we're going to explore the Old Testament concept of sprinkling, and we're going to see that it ends up proving that baptism is immersion. So as I explore this idea of sprinkling a little more, we're going to prove that baptism is immersion in water. So go with me here just a minute. Consider with me then as we consider the idea of sprinkling. I looked up the, uh, the root word and it, there's a Greek, Greek word there, uh, rantizo, that means to sprinkle. And so I went back into the Old Testament and you might be like, well, you can't look up Greek words in the Old Testament. That was written in Hebrew. Well, the Hebrew... The, the people who liked the Old Testament, they wanted, the, the, uh, they wanted to have their scriptures in more than just Hebrew, so they translated it to Greek. And so we have a, what's called a Septuagint. And actually, the interesting thing about the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is Jesus mostly quoted from the Septuagint. He didn't quote the Hebrew writings. He quoted the Hebrew translated into Greek. So we're going to look at the Septuagint so that we can consider the words that are used there 
and see how they relate to the Greek words for sprinkling that we just saw in Hebrews and 1 Peter. If you're confused, that's all right. Trust me, as we, we move on, we go to, we're using the same word. We're looking at the word uh, that was used in Hebrews and in 1 Peter, and we look at it in the Old Testament. Rantizo is listed there. The idea of is found in Luke, or excuse me, Leviticus 6.20. There are only eight times in the Old Testament that that Greek word is used when they translated uh, in, translated the Old Testament into Greek. Only eight times that the root word um, rantizo was used. And it's the word for sprinkled. And it takes us to Leviticus chapter 6. Leviticus chapter 6, we're going to put it in context. So we go to a few chapters before. In Leviticus chapter 4, uh, we look and we see in Leviticus chapter 4, it talks about a priest, and he will dip, and will dip the priest, his finger in the blood, and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord down along the veil, uh, the holy veil. Here you're finding a place where the word sprinkle you see over on the right uh, is used and it's also conveying the word dip, bapto. Most of us know from bapto you get the Greek word baptizo. And immediately when we come to the Old Testament and we start looking at the idea of sprinkling, we find out that a, a priest would immerse his finger in the blood and then sprinkle. Two different things. The one very in Leviticus is where you get the words sprinkle come up. They dip it in the blood, then they sprinkle. They immerse and sprinkle. They baptize and then they do the sprinkling. The word, uh, as we look at bapto in the Old Testament. So the, the previous slide was the connection, and I make the jump then to the, to the next thought, is that bapto is used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint. And you can see on this slide, I don't know how well you'd be able to read this, but in Exodus 12, 22, that is the first use of the word bapto. And it says a bundle of hips, hyssop and you dip it, you immerse it in the blood. So the word bapto means to dip or immerse. Clearly from that language, you dip it and immerse it in the blood. And then they're going to go dab the lintel and put it upon both of the doorposts. This was the idea of the Passover. If you wanted to be saved from the death angel, the angel of, of death that would come... You kill, slaughter the lamb, you get the blood, and you put some hyssop in it, you wipe the top of the door, you wipe the sides of the door, and your place is covered. The angel, death angel, will pass by. Uh, Leviticus chapter 4, verse 6 is the verse we were just at a second ago. And then we'll dip the priest, his finger, in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord down along the holy veil. Leviticus chapter 4, verse 17. 
And then the priest will dip his finger, taking some of the blood of the bull, and sprinkle it before the Lord. So baptism is immersing something into another liquid. Into a liquid, into blood, into a mixture of blood and water. Leviticus 9, 9 down at the bottom. And then he brought the sons of Aaron the blood to him and dipped his finger in the blood. Dipped, dipped, dipped. Bapto is always uh, translated dipped. So the Hebrews, when uh, Exodus and Leviticus were written, the concept was very clear. They were dipping something, and then the, root, the word for immersing or dipping, they used the uh, Greek word, bapto. They would bapto something, and then sprinkle something. So, every use of bapto in the Septuagint means to dip or immerse. The reason we got here is because we were going to the Old Testament to find out what sprinkle meant. And associated with sprinkle was bapto. Is baptism a disputable matter? Could baptism, when you get to the New Testament and you start reading through Scripture and you start under looking and seeing what does baptism mean, because baptism is very much a, a religious word. Well, if you start searching the Scripture... And you're looking at the scriptures, even if you're trying to point to some way to understand that, well, maybe, maybe baptism is associated with sprinkling. It quickly, you go back to the Old Testament to find out what sprinkling meant. And you find out that before something was sprinkled, it got baptized. Something had to be dipped before something could be sprinkled. So when the new, you get to the New Testament and you understand that scripture tells people to be Baptize, it is saying, be immersed. You be dipped and raised up to a new life. The mode of baptism is immersion. This is not a debatable matter. You can't scoop a little bit, sprinkle a little bit. Immersion means, or excuse, well, as you think about the New Testament, baptism means immersion. You immerse a person who is filled with faith in Jesus Christ, wanting to give their life to Him. You let them die to the old self and be raised up to a new life. Baptism is not a disputable matter. So I encourage everyone today, uh, no matter what kind of denomination you've been involved with in the past, no matter what your thoughts were on baptism, if you want to live for Christ Jesus, today is the day that you can receive salvation and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, receive remission of your sins that was promised when you are immersed into Christ. Every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. If you need to come to Him today, I encourage you to come as we stand together and sing.